You're listening to That'll Preach. We are uh, going to be continuing our series of uh, interviews and conversations that we like to have, bringing on uh, guests to talk about important issues, uh, theological issues, and, and things relating to the church. And today we have uh, Reverend Ben Jeffries with us today. And uh, Reverend Je- uh, Jeffries, he is a rector at the Good Shepherd Anglican Church in Okalika, Alabama. And uh, he is uh, also an author. He's written a book called No Other Foundation, which is essays on women's ordination in the Anglican Church. So he's, he's actually edited the book, but he's written a few of the chapters of it. And uh, that's what we're going to be talking about today. And we're going to be picking uh, Reverend Jeffrey's mind on this uh, particular topic. But Ben, thank you for joining us. Yeah, glad to be here. Glad to get to engage on this topic. So as I was reading through this, well, first, I mean, this is an interesting book to read, No Other Foundation. And just even as we've, uh, you know, we, we, we talk, we actually met uh, in person at the consecration of the newest uh, bishop yes. in the Gulf, Gulf uh, Atlantic, whatever the diocese that, that uh, yeah, down that's in Tallahassee, yeah, uh-huh. yeah, that's right. And uh, that was a great experience. It was amazing going there. I, I mean, as a, as a dreaded non-denominational low church guy. Uh, going to uh, the, the cathedral, going to see that uh, that transfer of office um, to the bishops uh, was was really powerful. It was really interesting to see that, seeing the procession, the line of you guys. I mean, it was it felt like a college graduation. Mm-hmm. Like you guys are all decked out, walking through, and uh, that was a great moment. But it also highlighted to me, uh, as an outsider to the Anglican world, um, the difference in the traditions and. It was interesting to see how those differences affect the debate on women's ordination. Um, a Baptist and an Anglican may come to the same conclusion on not ordaining women, hmm. but they may come to it in different ways based on their polity or their tradition or how they view ordination or how they view what uh, a rector or a priest or a pastor does. Right. And so that that's kind of what's interesting to me, learning about your perspective from within your tradition. So maybe give a, a little bit of a sketch. What is the state of the uh, women's ordination debate within the Anglican Church? You know, what what's what are the talking points? What's kind of your involvement with it? How did you get involved in that debate? Uh, just open that up for us. Sure, yeah. Um, so prior to the mid-20th century, um, there were only men as bishops, priests, and deacons um, for the history of the Anglican Church, and then prior to the Reformation, um, for the history of the Church in England, you know, for the centuries before that. Um, and then that, of course, being of a piece with the great tradition generally, that prior to the 20th century, there were no women in, um, well, even to, de- to this very day in the Roman Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox Churches, other um, sort of tradents of the great tradition, um, there are no women in the three holy orders. Um, But then beginning in the um, early 20th century, um, there was, uh, as a sort of uh, rough missional exigency, there was a woman ordained to the priesthood um, somewhere in East Asia. I'm forgetting now which exact this is the Episcopal Church. Well, so um, or, or well, well, I guess right. The Episcopal is an American. Exactly. So I, yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's the Anglican Church, Church in yeah, that region, yeah. which would uh, okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and there, and so then there was debate, um, and then of course you have to map it against the backdrop of just the 20th century women's movement. 
sort of, you know, maybe it was the beginning end of like the suffrage movement to then sort of early feminism and the seventies and all that. And so, um, there's sort of initial plans for sort of like careful discussion and theological inquiry, but, um, actually just, um, barging ahead with ordinations took place sort of preempted, you know, uh, extended theological inquiry and collaboration. And so it just became sort of this raw fact to be dealt with. There was a, um, famous ordination, um, the, f- uh, I, th- I think it's called the Philadelphia 11, um, in the, uh, late sixties or early seven, early seventies, um, in the Episcopal church. And that was corresponded to a number of similar incidences in Canada and England. Well, England wasn't until the nineties, but, um, so there was just sort of this fact of these ordinations and then, sort of alongside and tangential to it was sort of continued theological thinking, but it was kind of a fait accompli in reality. Um, and so I should say it did actually begin, there were women deacons, I think in the sixties. Uh, but then when women became priests, all that sort of the question just kind of moved on. And then in the 1980s, there was the first woman bishop in the Episcopal church. Um, so around the world in Anglicanism, the idea of women bishops did not really take on, except in the Episcopal Church and the Church of England in England and Canada. Um, and then, uh, but but women priests generally did. And then that has become uh, really a majority view around the Anglican Communion. Um, it was more quickly embraced uh, by the uh, evangelical portion of the church. Uh, those who had a, you know, sort of an in-house distinction within Anglicanism is folks who sort of self-style what kind of flavor of Anglican they are, you know, evangelical kind of accenting the reform quality of our heritage and then, you know, Catholic accenting the Catholic sort of great tradition heritage of our church. So um, the sort of, but even among the so-called Catholic-minded Anglicans, there were some who supported women's ordination for different reasons. So, so yeah, so state of play today is on the ground, it's a fait accompli. There are women priests uh, in most everywhere. There are a few dioceses in our province, the Anglican Church in North America, in which there are no women priests. The Diocese of the South, which is Archbishop Foley's diocese, uh, Diocese of Fort Worth, Diocese of Quincy in Central Illinois, San Joaquin in California. Um, so there are a handful of dioceses that have no, uh, oh, upper Midwest uh, in um, Chicago, Milwaukee area, no women priests. And then among those, there's a differing opinion as to whether or not women are capable of receiving uh, the orders to the diaconate. And so, like, for instance, Diocese of the South, there are women deacons. But in um, Diocese of Fort Worth, there's neither women priests nor women deacons, and, you know, the, the traditional uh, position. So so as a young, I'm a young priest in seminary, I went to an evangelical undergraduate uh, college, Wheaton College, and so it was kind of formed in a kind of evangelical way of reading scripture, kind of like a, moderately sanctified higher critical way of reading um and uh i would have been inclined to be favorable towards women's ordination from that way of reading the scriptures that i learned there um seminary at nashota house which is one of the sort of catholically flavored seminaries uh in the anglican church um that really uh, affected sort of i was confronted with data that affected a, just a sea change of mind for me in terms of just st- structures of thinking about truth and theology. Um, I mean, I'll just, I'll just never forget, we had a historical theology professor having us read the Apostolic Fathers, those writings that come immediately subsequent to the New Testament. Um, and seeing in those, 
um, you know, St. Ignatius uh, of Antioch describing the Eucharist as the medicine of immortality. And we can recognize the heretics because they disavow that this is really the true flesh of Christ in the Eucharist, arguing from the Eucharist towards the incarnation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just realized like, oh, I had been raised in a Baptist background, sort of no sacramental category of thinking for me. And so I just realized like, wow, I've been wrong about too many things. I like, hear this is the, the successes to the apostles. And they're talking about, you know, only that Eucharist is valid, which is celebrated under the authority of the bishop. And it's like, oh my gosh, bishop. So, so I just realized like, wow, there's this whole great tradition handing down the faith of once for all delivered to us. Um, and it just kind of put me back into, a, I think, an increase of a posture of humility towards trying to learn what does Christianity teach and relying less on my own sort of intellectual interrogations or sense of my own smartness or whatever and just saying, well, what does the tradition say? Is there a continuous or con- and consensual witness like through the centuries on any topic? So that sort of category shift then, I still wasn't sure to make about women's ordination and I actually resolved to not hastily make up my mind because of course not being a bishop, I don't have to ordain anybody. So it was, you know, it's just theoretical to me at some level. So I was like, I got a lot of, you know, I got time. I don't, I don't have to force the decision. And I resolved to not make it up till I felt strongly one way or the other. And over the course of six or seven years, beginning halfway through, sem- beginning the beginning of seminary, um, and then kind of into the first several years of ministry, I really hemmed and hawed back and forth, like 55, 45, 45, 55, like four against, like trying to sift the biblical data and the tradition. And the tradition was clear. The question was like, did the, has the tradition faithfully interpreted scripture um, or has, as really is at the root of the pro-women's ordination argument, has, is it the case that the church has just been wrong from the beginning? This has been just some um, latent, unexposed um, patriarchalism, maybe at its worst misogyny, that has just kept us from seeing the truth of the scriptures for 2000 unbroken years. Um, and it really was, I, it was only a couple years ago, maybe just a year or two before coming out of that book, where I felt like all of a the sudden, these, all these pieces kind of clicked into view. And I had this sort of epiphany moment of feeling like, ah, oh, I feel like I can see the biblical data all on the table together, you know, to, to the best of my ability and can make sense of it in a way. And there was really sort of two catalytic moments that uh, affected that, um, that I think led to that epiphanic moment. One was um, I just saw a woman who was ordained priest in the ACN and she was married to a man who was a layman. And just sort of getting this sort of this this visual puzzle of in church she is the spiritual authority because she's the a priest, but then at home there's this dynamic you know that's very mystical and it's difficult to pin down exactly what it means. But that where the man is the head, you know, in Ephesians five, and so at church he's under he's under her leadership, but at home she's under his. How does that work? Like right, what build what room what room you've crossed changes. You know, every the question sort of dawned was. Did God create the family and the church to fit together as sort of harmonious Lego pieces, or are they actually at, at uh, in disjunction to each other? Right, and that, and that sort of the family as you'd order it wouldn't fit into the church if it's true that women can be priests. Um, and then, but then the other thing was, you know, I think in the ACNA as in all sort of biblically minded churches, we're very aware of the specter of um, pro-gay hermeneutics, right? Like of saying, well, no, if we just look into the cultural context enough, we can see that the plain proscription against homosexual expression in Acts, um, in Romans chapter one, you know, if we understand the cultural context, we can see it doesn't, it doesn't mean what it sounds like. And so there's this kind of homoerotic move, like look at, you know, do scholarly contextual work and it reverses the plain meaning. 
Um, and it became increasingly clear to me that that is the sort of hermeneutic that's used on passages like First Timothy 2.12, where you, where you have to say, um, you know, if we look at all the scholarly work, it actually doesn't mean what it sounds like. And you have to say to your parishioners, I mean, I'm a priest, right? I'm a parish priest. I preach up to, to Christians every Sunday. I, I, I'm forced to say, oh, I know the Bible sounds like it's saying women can't have authority over men, but but actually they can. I was like, well, if, if you can do it, but actually, after any scripture, you have no Bible left, you have no, no authority, no Christian discipleship. And so what really clicked for me was, if I imagined sort of two platforms on which to stand, one pro-women's ordination, one opposed, how can I make sense of the other platform's scriptures? And which one does more violence to the text as a whole? And so I was thinking like, okay, well, if I stand on the platform of being supportive of women's ordination. I have to say that 1 Timothy 2.12 barely has any meaning at all. In fact, its meaning is the opposite of what it looks like. Um, and I have to do like a, a really a, a horrific violence to the text there. Um, and 1 Corinthians 14, uh, and the fact that there were only male apostles. Um, but if I stand on the vantage point of taking the traditional position that is that does not recognize that it's possible for a woman to be ordained priest or deacon, Bishop. Um, the only texts I have to reckon with are, you know, Galatians three and Christ is neither male nor female, um, or uh, I, you know, um, Euodia and Syntyche, you know, co-laborers in the gospel. And actually, these are very easy texts to reconcile to say, well, Galatians is clearly talking about our like fundamental baptismal identity in Christ Jesus. That in the church there should be no distinction created among the uh, uh, among the ransomed, right, Jew or Greek. Okay, that's about just identity in the church, not about leadership structures, in the same way that male female still comes to play in a family structure, right? Um, it's not completely overthrown, just so we wouldn't also expect the same in the church. And then, you know, Euodia and Syntyche, um, recognizing that the role of women in the church is crucial. It's a fundamental, un the church could not exist without it. They are truly co-laborers in the gospel, and yet we see it's, if we read into read it uh, as a backdrop to that passage, the way the women supported Jesus's ministry, chiefly through um, means, hospitality, you know, um, provision, that these are benefactresses who are co-laborers in the gospel. Like when the church gives money to one other portion of the church, they have actually participated in that ministry in a non-negotiable, wonderful way. You know, you don't have to do much violence to your audience into key to sort of harmonize it with a women can't be in authoritative teaching positions in the church. And so it was a question of like, well, that this standing on this platform does way less violence to the some witness of scripture. And that is such a fundamental principle. Then I'm, that's the platform that helps solve the biblical thing. And from there, I was able to rest my mind in that the tradition has not been wrong from the beginning. You know, it wasn't that just sort of misogyny took over in some early Catholicism, whatever, you know, these sort of fictions that get created by the higher critical school. Um, so yeah, so those were just kind of the two big things and that insight was such a relief. I wanted to kind of gather some of that, you know, and that, and that led to eventually to the book, um, that came out. So it seems like you were saying that there were, there were, there were two building blocks. There was one that was the church tradition and their historic interpretation has been pretty unanimous about fully unanimous. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. 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 And, and, I, and it's pretty powerful. If you consider the Eastern Orthodox church, the Catholics, Protestants, they disagree on a lot, right? A lot, right? But when there is such a unanimous testimony 
to one thing, that says a lot as well, yeah. considering the, the doctrines that people disagree on. So there was, there was the argument from tradition where mm-hmm. you saw it's, it, you've got to really have a good case if you're going to go against all of that. Yes. Right. And then there's the sort of the exegetical thing where you're, you're looking at 1 Timothy 2. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man. Rather, she's made quiet. Uh, and then, you know, the, the, uh, the passages about women uh, prophesying and, and, and women being silent in church and what that means. You're also going, okay, but there's also good exegetical arguments where I don't feel like I'm saying this text doesn't actually say what it seems to be saying. Yes. And, yes. and then that, that kind of combines with a, a pastoral concern of wanting to be able to be full-throated uh, when you talk about these uh, uh, do, uh, uh, passages say, no, th- this, I, I can say this text is saying what it actually seems to be saying yes. with confidence. Um, yes, exactly. So, so well, maybe, well summarized. Maybe we could start with, because one, one thing I've heard, one objection I've heard, so let's take the church tradition part. And you mm-hmm. mentioned a common objection is, well, church tradition can be wrong. I mean, we are Protestants. Even if you're more <laughs> sure. Anglo-Catholic, you're not mm-hmm. fully Catholic, you know. So there's something, there are times when tradition can err and needs to be reformed. And also, and this was something interesting that I heard in the interview uh, with uh, Tish Harrison Warren and her husband, and they, they, were, they were talking about their arguments for women's ordination. He mentioned and which podcast was that on, by the way? I'm, it was I'm, on, uh, oh my God, uh, it was something. Oh, no worries. <laughs> I was just yeah, curious, yeah. I kind of wanted called to It's Seminary Dropout. Seminary Dropout. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. So well, one of the arguments that her husband made was that... Um, Prior to the 20th century, the tradition's testimony against women's ordination was almost unanimously about the inferiority of women. Mm. That that the reason that they would cite, so he talked about Augustine, uh, people saying that women are not fully in the image of God, and that their conclusion may agree with what we would say, but how they get there is based in a view of women being inferior, an Aristotelian view of women where women are not fully, you know, human or ontologically inferior. Mm. Um, so that, that was, and I'd never heard that argument before. Mm. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. So I think it's not a just representation of the historical data to say that the church has sort of made based its argument off of um, uh, apprehension of su- supposedly an inferiority of women. Um, uh, and really f- a couple points that I think this is not a just uh, dealing is that um, the raw fact of a male men only in holy orders as was su- had such a sort of uh, um, hegemonically established quality, it-, it was beyond question. It was just, it was a total norm for all those centuries. And so we don't get hardly any writing about it for centuries because it just wasn't questioned in the same way that no one writes essays in the New Yorker on, oh, the sky is blue and the grass is green because it's like, those are just givens. That's not interesting. There's no need to write about it. So there's very little sort of, uh, extremely little. We actually only get these sort of passing comments in the patristic witness. Um, um, A couple times um, when heretical bodies not in communion with the established apostolically succeeded bishops um, who then are sort of going off in all kinds of heresies of different varieties. Um, Epiphanius has this catalog of these sort of different heresies he's aware of where he's trying to warn his parishioners to say, if you encounter this, if you encounter this. Um, and one of the, he, he lists one of the sects um, 
that sort of claims to have a Christian uh, heritage, but they uh, ordain women, and he points that out as sort of a fault, you know, part of their error. And so, you know, we see it cataloged as among those who are already in error. Um, and then we we do see like um, uh, occasional instances of a view that is not of of women um, that is not true. <laughs> like they're actually just objectively wrong, um, and also. Uh, under their their sort of my, their view is is underinformed by the fullness of the gospel and the biblical witness. Like I think John Chrysostom in heaven right now is re- if it's capable of, to feel repentance in heaven is sorry for what he wrote about in that passing comment where he talked about women being inferior. Yeah. And now one thing to remember is that he's preaching at that point in the court in Constantinople against the empress herself who's overlooking like she has power over right. him of life and death she can have him behead as he, as she did have him exiled he was courageously preaching against some of her um uh luxurious lascivious you know um leadership so 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 he's not sort of like taking some housewife and just sort of like rubbing her nose in the dirt right he's pre- it's a, the context is colors it it doesn't make it right but i think he was wrong about that um but he didn't sort of his mentions of his own bad thinking about women, these are side angle remarks about, you know, sort of throwaway comments like, well, and, you know, and of course, because of this other reason, it's not like the careful, thoughtful treaties, the way in which, you know, the divinity of Christ was brought up in the fourth, in the third, you know, the fourth century. And they really dug in thoughtfully and carefully in the intention, like this is the thing we're pursuing. And here's the arguments. There was none of that because it wasn't really, it wasn't challenged within the church. Um, so, you know, to to say that the whole tradition stands on these, you know, really that we have two or three sort of like um, really odious comments about the nature of women by Chrysostom and Augustine, and um, that was not the foundation on which the argument was built. It was actually just a reality, and we don't get into arguments until the 20th century. So basically, uh, it would be saying... Every time they talk about women's ordination, they always use these inf- ontological inferiority arguments. And you're si- kind of saying, well, every time is overblowing it because right. they didn't talk about it a lot. Exactly. And when they did, they did say some things that are incorrect and unbiblical. But to extrapolate from that, that that was the reasoning for why they held the position would be uh, would almost be anachronistic. It would almost be importing the level and the... Uh, frequency of the debate over women's ordination today to a time when that just wasn't something that happened. Exactly, exactly. And it's not even fair to this as a summary of their own thoughts about gender roles. You know, sure. when you look at some of, even John Chrysostom, who's sort of the famous bugaboo in this conversation, yeah. Yeah. when you look at some of his homilies on Ephesians on marriage, the way in which he ex- exhorts husbands to treat their wives and the way in which he rhetorically frames women who are wives there is a dignity there that is completely absent in pre-Christian rhetoricians, like you know Cicero or whatever. Like, yeah, th- like it is the case that like women, there's a long and tragic history of women's human dignity and worth being undervalued by men. Um, that is a tra- trajectory which the Christians are less guilty of than the non-Christian and pre-Christian counterparts. That they're actually on a growth track, as it were, and in their actual lived actions. Um, it honored the reality of Galatians three of Ephesians five in ways where you know to summarize John Chrysostom's John Chrysostom's view of women because of this one throwaway comment, 
that that's not how he actually treat that doesn't summarize well how sure. he actually thinks Christians should treat husbands should treat their wives you know men should view women um yeah it's almost like you know to use today's terms so he in a bad moment he left an angry comment on a on a blog post right and yeah. it's like that no no he wasn't building his ministry his theological case off of this he he regrets that comment I'm sure of it and there are times yeah. when people who would be pro women's ordination will quote scholars who would deny the authority of the scriptures or who would be sure. who would be who would hold to beliefs that the pro women's ordination proponent would not agree with right. but would still say okay they could have errant beliefs but come to the conclusion that I think is correct and that seems to be the case here that yeah. uh, that Chris you know John Christen said things that we wouldn't agree with but let us mean that that was the totality of his reasoning or that that marks the thought of every single person who was thinking in that way. Exactly. And, and really, you know, the, the way the church has always functioned is some new action or teaching comes up and then the church takes like, you know, two to three generations to sort of like sure. really dig in. And I mean, our explanations of the Trinity, of the of God, of God, who is Trinity, right are clearer and sharper because we had to deal in the fourth century with all the heretics right that's so right part of the creation of this book and was just to show like we are actually we have only put our hands into this biblical question as a church for the first time in the 20th century sure and some of these early actions i think were wrong and to think of it as just this fate accompli never to be changed it's like no no we're really only in generation two i mean the church of england in england didn't all start ordaining women to the early 90s that's i mean that's my lifetime right 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 you know these are actually these are not dead questions they're live questions hmm. um and let's keep digging you know i i dislike almost everything the philosopher martin heidegger says or beliefs but he just <laughs> said this one point where he says you know the, the answer to um Oh, of course, now I'm forgetting the exact quote, but to something to say, like, you know, when something doesn't seem, when intellectual work seems like it's not thoughtful enough, the, the answer isn't to stop digging. It's to actually be more thoughtful, to keep pushing through with ever deeper investigation and thought until you get to a satisfying resting ground. So that's what I really hoped with the uh, No Other Foundation and just this conversation, generally this very podcast, is to say, no, th these are not closed questions. Like the Problems or nations I have raised some good questions. Let's keep digging into them. Oh, and let's see what answers we find in earnest. Uh, and I'm com I'm confident and convinced that if we keep digging, we actually find answers that favor and support the traditional received practices prior to the 20th century. And I think you could it could go both ways. I mean, you could say, well, all the church tradition influenced by heavy patriarchy and misogyny interpreted versus certain ways. Well, you could say, well, the post sexual revolution church. Does the same thing. And so exactly. it, it doesn't really get you anywhere. Right. And uh, well, that, that's why I appreciate in your book, you, you have a very strong uh, focus on particular passages. I mean, we, we talked about First Timothy yeah. 2 mm -hmm. about not allowing a woman to teach or preach or to, to teach or exercise authority over a man. Mm -hmm. And uh, man, I mean, so much ink has been spilled over that. Mm -hmm. But um, it, it's, it sounds like. Um, so. It, it, the debate seems to be the word authority, authentain, which mm -hmm. is not, doesn't show up anywhere else uh, in the New Testament. Right. right. And uh, what, 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 but, and so that presents a problem because you think, well, what kind of authority is a woman not allowed to hold? And it seemed like you sketched out two possibilities. It could just be authority in general, mm -hmm. or it could be a pejorative use of it, meaning a, a, a negative kind of authority, a disruptive or an overbearing authority. Mm -hmm. And so, depending on how you plug that in, if you say it's just normal authority, well, then you're saying a woman can't hold authority over a man, which 
would preclude her from being a priest. Mm-hmm. Or a woman should not hold a disruptive or an overbearing kind of authority over a man, which would allow her to be a priest, just not, I guess, you know, a, a bean priest or mm-hmm. something like that, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but you, you, you looked in that and you said, okay, well, uh, you started to research that. And what, what were some of the things that you found as you were researching the use of authentane and, and really what that whole debate is kind of circling around? What are some things that you uncovered? Mm. Man, I, I really should have reread my essay before. Yeah, you should read your own book, you know, because it's been a couple of years. Um, but so let me just, let's see what memory, what has sifted from memory. Um, so the first is that you know a lot of just lexical work has been done. You know, there's a great volume. Um, the, the third edition is especially strong, by edited by Thomas Schreiner, Women in the Church, uh, and Andreas Kustenberger. Um, so they bring forward a lot of the lexical work that's been done in the '90s and early 2000s, just on the lexeme, um, authentane, um, uh, and, and sort of show that against some maybe sort of earlier hypotheses, actually, you know, the, the classical uses and things, the most probable reading is that it just means authority. And so to right. merely sort of philological, lexicological level, you know, we could kind of settle it that way. But then um, additionally, you know, one of the things that as someone in the great tradition I'm interested in is post-history. Well, how was the word received? And when it was translated and used in other early translations of scripture, you know, early lexica, um, it was just translated with the normal word for authority. They didn't find some special word. Like they didn't, it wasn't received as having some sort of bizarre and unique meaning that gave it an inverse end game meaning of the sentence, right? Um, and then, you know, it frames, you know, even if, if, if we assume that the great tradition is not, if we don't, if we don't assume that the great tradition is already, already wrong, that maybe for Paul, it's perfectly reasonable to read, even if you do add a t- tiny spicing of, you know, illegitimate or mean or usurping authority, that maybe actually Paul is actually offering commentary on the on the very nature of having a woman in authority. That he, if it has that quality, it doesn't necessarily land where those who want to give authentic and pejorative meaning think it lands. Um, and then, really, against you know, so most of the argument is actually built up against a sort of imagined reconstruction of the uniqueness of Ephesus. I think in reality, this is something of a uh, an academic fiction that Ephesus um, maybe only differed by very slight degrees from any other major Roman city um, in that it had uh, temples and shrines um, that were attended primarily by women uh, as the sort of liturgical curators of those shrines. You know, like that was a common a standard feature. And Ephesus is not unique that it's not like, oh, well, just in Ephesus, because of this one shrine, the, the women decided that they could be bossily in authority. And that's what, you know, Paul is critiquing. Um, whereas it's like, well, no, we, that's a pretty standard backdrop for the New Testament. And so, it doesn't explain a unique attitude in Ephesus, but then even if it did, even if it did, even granting that sort of academic reconstruction of a supposedly unique Ephesus, is it possible that the social conditions of Ephesus could be repeated in some version in other eras and places in history? That's right. And I, and I would argue like, yeah, in the mid 20th century, this sort of like, um, uh, you know, some of the fruits after second wave feminism, you know, yeah. it's like, actually, actually, that kind of looks like it. That actually is kind of rhymes oh, with yeah. emphasis. And so, th- that we see women getting ordained on the heels of mid-20th century feminism um, a- actually corresponds to an Ephesian setting, whether unique or not. And therefore, the prohibition would would stand 
Yeah, I, same. So, I yeah. always wonder that with, uh, yeah. I remember Michael Bird, he had a, he uh, wrote about, he, he's pro women's ordination, he's right. And he said that, uh, you know, the, the construction was this, First Timothy 2 is yeah. a, a just a cultural command, because at the time, there's a temple of Artemis in right, Ephesus, right. and there were all these women, right. and there was a new Roman woman who was independent, and even sexually promiscuous and all. Right. And I'm like, are you describing the 20th century? Are you describing yes. our day to, you know, and, right. and I, and I always wonder it, if you're pro women's ordination and you live in first century Ephesus, are you writing Paul an angry letter? Are you going to write yeah. him an email yeah. you know, or a scroll that says what you're doing is sinful? Or are you going to say, you know what, this is cultural. The conditions are met. This is perfectly acceptable. And if it's perfectly acceptable, then, then it stands to reason like you're saying we could, there, there, it is perfectly acceptable to silence women or to not allow them to be ordained. Right. So long as the culture is a certain way, you're allowed right. to do that. It right. seems like right. you have to concede that, right? Right, exactly. And, and usually the scripture is, I should say always, the scripture is actually very precise about the error that it's pointing out. Like when um, a, a spiritual leader is doing things in a sort of bossy, usurping way, it's the bossiness that gets rebuked, as in First Peter, you know, overseers oh, right, um, right. don't do this for selfish gain. You know, he he's critiquing the motive, not the legitimacy of the overseer, and that's not what is like. First Peter five is a good, actually, sort of contrast to First Timothy two. And um, he doesn't say that uh, you know if if men become overbearing in their authority, uh, I do not permit men to teach or like right. have a ban on men. And it's it's, exactly. it's oddly sexist for him to ban all women from teaching or holding authority over men for the for the sake of a few in the right. congregation. Yeah, that's right. It would be an overreaction. Yeah. And actually, speaking of, if it was that way, speaking of overreaction, that's, I think, also a really important piece of just sort of 20th century history is that we see um, a mid-20th century, secondly feminist, sort of um, sexually liberating women's movement. Um, after that, we see the ordination of women in the Western churches. Um, and then after that, what we see is sort of uh, a, a large portion of evangelicals, the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, kind of responding to the whole thing, women possibly pastors, the cultural moment, and sort of and, and opposing it so strongly with like the, what's that statement from the 80s? The, is it the Denver statement? Oh, the Danvers statement. Danvers statement, yeah. Denver yeah, statement. yeah, yeah. Right, 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 you know, right. So I, I think they just get this sort of like, oh my gosh, this is all new and bad. And they sort of over just swing this way. Right. And then what they do is they try and tangle together all of these things about like gender roles in society generally, gender yeah. roles in the family, gender roles in the church, and then cultural norms from the mid-20th century that they sort of slightly read into sure. um, you know, the the biblical mandates. And it all kind of gets bundled together. And I think it overswings this way. And so then now those who are in favor of women's ordination can say, well, look at how these guys are just importing mid-20th century gender roles, post-war, World War II gender roles right. into their biblical readings. And, and they're not immune from that attack. You know, it's like, oh, but that criticism actually is fair. Sure. And so part of what I'm wanting to carve out for our generation, you know, especially in-house in the Anglican conversation is, no, no, it, the choice is not between sort of like a full-throated, um, uh, liberatory, um, trajectory, you know, kind of the Episcopal, you know, this sort of problems or nation variety, yeah. or between Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. The, those choices, are, neither of those choices is the right one. Like just listening to the scriptures, allowing the great tradition to be the sort of um, court of appeals for points of ambiguity in the scriptures, and then just patiently sort of taking each thing it comes and say, well, yes, we can do that. No, we can't do that. You know, so, you know, you'll meet traditionalists 
who are opposed to women who recognize, and I oppose is the wrong word because it's not some personal agenda, right? Who just don't recognize that the Bible allows for women to be ordained um, into the into holy orders, um, who will then say, well, and you know, and because of that, they also shouldn't serve as readers or ushers or acolytes, you know, or, or on the senior warden right. of the vestry or whatever. And they're doing they're making the the CBMW mistake um of um bundling all together. It's like, no, and one of the things that I wanted to kind of push out too is like, no, we have this sort of humble reception of the holy tradition mediating to us the scripture, the, inter- the interpretation of the scriptures. We have the best thoughtful and exegetical work of the scriptures corroborating with that. Um, this actually gives us a really clear line in the sand. And so because I don't believe the church can ordain women to priest or deacon, I actually, to do anything beyond that would actually be to violate the truth of Galatians 3. If I were to say, well, women can't be readers or, or ushers. Right, like, right. No, then I'm actually violating Galatians 3 because I'm making a distinction among the laity, among the non right, right, which is actually to be doing the very thing the pro-women's ordination side would accuse everybody anyone who's opposed to doing of, of saying, you know, women are less than or whatever and making artificial patriarchal distinctions. So for me, I actually feel this great safeguard in our sort of Anglican way of doing church because we have, so, I mean, it's such a clear thing to be ordained versus not. It's such a long process. It can only be done by the bishop. You wear different ceremonial vestures, you know, and you're serving in the sanctuary, all these things. That's so clear cut that I actually feel a great freedom to invite women to every other ministry other than holy orders. So teaching, we have some fantastic women Bible teachers who teach in our Christian education program, um, reading the scriptures and not just teaching just women, but women and men, right? In our, in our Sunday evening programming. Um, my senior warden, the most um, gifted leader in our congregation when it was in our, on the vestry when it was time to pick senior warden was a woman. And there's nothing the, the Bible says, don't make a distinction among, I'm paraphrasing Galatians 3, don't sure. make a distinction among the laity. So I have a woman as a senior warden. She's in um, her 50s and has guided me so helpfully. I mean, I'm in my 30s. And so, you know, the wisdom that she's offered to the leadership of the parish, you know, the senior warden is not over the rector, right? Like the, it's a collaborative relationship. So I'm still embodying and in, in living into the traditional practice, First Timothy 2. Like I am the spiritual authority over the church. As an authority I steward in the name of Christ Jesus. It's not mine, right? Um, uh, it's not from me. Um, but in every other way, bringing women in, you know, because of the clear boundary to then actually make sure that I am also honoring the truth of Galatians. I always forget if it's verse 27 or 28, but Galatians 3, 28, I think it is. Yeah. Well, that that's fascinating because the, and the role of ordination, I think it it's difficult in, you know, sort of a non-denominational circles that I'm sort of in where leadership, there is an official recognition, but a lot of it is based around personal charisma, teaching ability, right. theological knowledge. And um, whereas the Anglicans have a very, you have an, a very external sense of authority. Yes. So, you know, the guy in the robe with the collar yeah. is the authority and other people exactly. can do being other things, but like it is so blatant and clear. Whereas in a non-denominational setting, it's the guy with the mic who's, doing the public stuff, right. but, then, but then you go to, to go to think like, well, you know, I think Elizabeth Elliot even said like, you know, I could preach the walls off, you know, better than, you know, yes. it would be better than all you guys, but I'm not going to do it because it's not a permitted uh, right. office for me or something like that. But that's interesting. I think uh, uh, this is so interestingly connected to a view of ordination 
Yes. That I think helps get past the impasse because yes. it, it does feel like if you are against women's ordination, uh, you are just like the patriarchalist uh, or, or the misogynist, you know, you're, you're John Chrysostom and, and all yeah, those right. guys, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. and it seemingly the, the options are either be for women and ordain them or be against them and yes. not ordain them, you know, whereas you're saying, it's a false choice. No, actually, it's a yeah. false choice. Yeah. And I think that gets kind of lost in this debate where it's so, like you were saying, it's so bundled that, yeah. that, that um, it almost seems like it, it, it cannot be the case that right. anyone who truly valued women would ever forbid them from being ordained as a priest. Right, right, right. And, and that's, you know, and, and the flip side, just to kind of dovetail into that, the critique that um, sort of from a sort of culturally mediated um, kind of feminism that like, you know, men just have these sort of patriarchal instincts, like, you know, the kind of accusation of like mansplaining or something like that. I actually think we need to receive that as Christians. I mean, I've had to in my marriage. I've, I mean, it, the, the Holy Spirit has led me into it to realize, oh, wow, like I'm actually conducting myself in this conversation with my wife as if I'm really the boss. And when light gets shown, it's like, oh, that actually is patriarchalism and is odious to the Lord and, and, and corrupting to my soul and hurtful to my spouse, my wife. And so I need to repent of that, right? And so it's not just because sort of things which get, go under the flag of feminism have been not good for the church of the question of holy orders doesn't mean that feminism has no useful insights to, with which we actually can lean into the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and are useful criticisms, you know. Um, so, yeah, to sort of not be allergic, again, with that false choice, to not say, I'm not going to listen to anything the feminists say, or I'm going to whatever, but to say, no, this, these are things the Lord actually, I think it's actually a really crucial work in pastoring Christian marriages that men fully separate from this um, identifying headship with being the boss. That's the poison to Christian marriage, I think, actually. Right. And so, it's against yeah. the, the vision of Christ as head of the church. He has exactly. real authority. It's a, it's right. a real authority, but it's a, a, a washing her with the word and a caring for her exactly. and, you know, and nourishing. And exactly. It, and, it is, and the self-sacrifice on the cross. I mean, if, and I guess if you're, a, if you're a pastor or you're a husband and you've got to walk around being like, just so you know, I'm the boss. It's like, you're probably a very poor leader. <laughs> yeah, right. You have to throw exactly. your weight around like that, you know? Yeah. That's um, not even good headship in actual leadership situations. Yeah, like exactly, in an institution right. or whatever. Exactly. Well, exactly. I want to get to the again back to the first Timothy two verse because because yeah. one of the things you said was was that you didn't want to feel um, like you were uh, obfuscating what the verse was saying. If it exactly. says, "I do not permit a woman to, to teach or exercise authority over a man," um, you don't want to be like, "Well, that doesn't mean what it actually says." Right. Um, but I could hear a rebuttal saying, "Well, before that, it says, let a learn quiet, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness.'" And then you see in First uh, Corinthians eleven uh, about. I think it's First Corinthians 11 where, where it talks about, you know, let a woman be silent in all the churches or something like that. And so yeah. there, are these, there's, there seem to be these blanket statements about women being silent, which, which would preclude them from scripture reading or mm -hmm. teaching on a Sunday evening or uh, in, you know, in a non-Lord's Day gathering type thing. Or it, it, it would seem to be like, so it, it seems like even for those who are against women's ordination, you still have to be like, well, the text, when it says, uh, women can't speak. They don't mean all the time. Like we still have to kind of have an asterisk, no matter how we slice it, unless we want to take it wholesale and just have women not speak at all. Mm. How do we? How do we deal with that objection? I guess I want to make a distinction between um, sort of a humble submissiveness to the plain sense of scripture, 
which I, which I think is of the utmost to be commended in the church and a sort of um, facile and hasty reading of scripture, that those are not synonyms, um, that we still have to be like, I mean, I still take pains to like keep getting better at biblical Greek. You know, um, I'm constantly immersing myself in the scriptures because I want to become rereading and rereading and rereading the scriptures because I want to become an ever better reader um, and more thoughtful more and more careful. Um, and carefulness doesn't mean sort of um, picking apart and destroying and making it do what, you know, it just means sort of delineating more carefully what are the edges of these words and sentences? What do they mean and what do they not mean? Mm. Um, and so I think when you trace the edge of 1 Timothy 2.12 as carefully as you can, um, it affirms it affirms like the reading you would get at, at first upon a first reading. Um, I think a careful reading, even a little bit of reading um, of First Corinthians fourteen um, um, doesn't um, function in the exact same way. In that, you know, one of the principles we have that guides us as Anglicans is in our thirty nine articles, we are actually bound. Um, not to, I'm quoting here, like to expound the, or paraphrasing at least, to expound the word of God um, in one place repugnant to another place. Like you can't re re expound a scripture to be repugnant to another scripture. Um, and so um, we we see women praying in church, which is a form of speaking. Um, mm -hmm. And and so, you know. Therefore, the I think it's Lale, it's a, it's a lalain from laleo in in that first Corinthians fourteen, um, which is a word which we know according to context has a sort of wide uh, semantic possibilities. Sure, um, it's not unlike First Timothy two twelve. It's not a hapax. It's used like thousands of times in the New Testament, with in different senses. Sometimes, um, you know, we are in, use different English glosses. You know, speak, say, proclaim, talk. You know, th these are words with different shades of meaning. Um, and in the context of 1 Corinthians 14, it seems clear that the women had been interrogating some of the men teachers um, in the midst of the congregational, you know, to use a sort of slightly anachronistic, well, actually, no, I'm not, not even anachronistic, in the midst of the liturgy. Um, um, they're doing that and they say, no, no, I don't permit you to talk like that, that kind of talking I'm just referring to right there. Sure. Not totally like, don't even make a peep. Right. And, you know, in terms of the great tradition too, right, the... The liturgies of the church place words of liturgy, which are chiefly words of psalms and scriptures, on the lips of the people. And the tradition has never has never said, you know, women don't say the responses, don't say amen, don't, you know, don't pray the Lord's Prayer. You know, the tradition has handed to us. No, in the in terms of prayer, the women and men are all praying um, in the church together. You know, the great architectural shift, you know, from the from the Jewish synagogue, which had kind of a back balcony for the women and the men up front, um, clearly prioritizing men over the women in a bad way, you know, gets gets turned around 90 degrees in all of the earliest uh, church settings that we know of, where the men and the women are standing side by side in two different aisles, both equally near the front. And what's interesting is, you know, the, for many centuries, right, the, whether you were married or single didn't matter, you sat next to your same sex. As a way of sort of also embodying an eschatological reality of the kingdom that there's not there's no marriage in heaven that we are souls gathered together before God, men and women shoulder to shoulder in terms of neither is before or after in terms of nearness to the holy table and to the pulpit. Um, 
and um yes that uh yes so to say to read First Corinthians 14 and say, no, well, if you're going to use that hermeneutic of 1 Timothy 2.12, that means that the women shouldn't make a peep. It's actually just cease to be careful to the text the way I'm wanting to urge. Um, because you're not taking into account the fact that women do speak in other gathered. Uh, with. So it seems like you're saying we do have evidence of women speaking in right. terms of prophesying and praying right. publicly right, right. In, in the church service. So uh, harmonizing scripture with scripture, you go, okay, Paul's... Uh, saying that you can't, that they have to be totally quiet. That's not saying totally quiet. Otherwise, he wouldn't say this other stuff. Exactly. It seems like they would go, well, well, but they can prophesy equals preaching. And you would say, well, no, there's different kinds of prophesying. There's different exactly. kinds of speaking. There's different that's, kinds of tongues, yep. You're being, you're being too um, simplistic with that and, and that, that, that we, we can actually have a way to delineate these types of things. Exactly, exactly. It's like finding one tool of a hammer and then just smashing everything and, sure. and then it makes a mess. Like, no, I want to, I want, I hope it to be like refined carpentry, you know, like tracing the contours and polishing it rightly and not just banging it all with the same hammer. <laughs> now, I, I do yeah. want to be clear to our listeners. If you heard a yawn, that was not me. That that was uh, that was Daisy. That was Ben's daughter who's wonderfully <laughs> joining us. And uh, she just woke up from a nap. So if you hear a yawn on the audio recording, I was not just <laughs> blatantly in front of Ben just yawning <laughs> at how boring he was or something like that. But um, I, I do have a question regarding, so whenever uh, we're in the subject of, you know, Paul seems to permit for women to prophesy and pray, mm-hmm. but he seems to not allow them to teach within the local congregation, within the gathered Lord's Day um, gathering, and to be in an authoritative role in that way. If she was teaching on Sunday evening in a mixed crowd, she would be, in a sense, teaching and holding some kind of authority. Yeah. Um, would she be allowed to do that on a Sunday morning if it just was known? If, if everybody knew she wasn't the, the rector, she, everybody knew that she wasn't ordained, or maybe you just don't let lay people preach. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how it works in the, in the Anglin world, but what would your, what's your thought process with that? Yeah, great, great question. So, um, so first, um, I don't know if I'd fully concede that someone teaching on a Sunday night Bible study has authority in the way that word resonates in the first century hierarchical society under the word authentane, under the word um, exousia, um, you know, teacher of scriptures in 21st century America, like you're seeking to bring information, illicit conversation, pastoral guidance, spiritual direction, you know, like it's not, you're not exercising authority, I think, um, in the same way that a rector of a church has authority in the church. One of the things that this has sharpened for me is that I think I hadn't realized until kind of digging into these investigations that one of the things I was unprepared, a conclusion I was unprepared, unexpected, didn't plan on reaching, was that, yeah, that we shouldn't actually have lay preachers, because then you would be making an artificial distinction among the laity. And actually, what I was very interested to learn, sort of, you know, kind of side angle research on this, was that in the Anglican Church, it wasn't until 1904 that a layperson ever preached in an Anglican church. Really? And there was okay. a huge controversy about it. There was a general convention, oh. which is like the every three, every, multi, every few year meeting in the Episcopal church. Um, and there was a faction that in the name of ecumenism and the sort of vision of like a unified American church um, ended up winning the day in by votes. And um, how does it go? By votes won the day. And it actually led like many, many clergy to like renounce their orders and sort of leave the church. It was a huge rift. And it was in Richmond, Virginia, I think it was 1904. 
So that was just one of those things where it's like, man, that was not very long ago. <laughs> um, and yet we take it as, a, as again, a fait accompli. And so um, I think for, to have consistency of principle and to not allow a sort of inherited cultural sort of, you know, low-grade patriarchalism to just to, to guide is consistency is important that I don't allow lay people to preach. So I don't. So it's only, only the ordained um, can preach uh, a good shepherd. Um, and then seminarians have always inhabited a sort of liminal gray area there because they are like sure. on the way to being ordained and need to learn how to preach. <laughs> right, so, right, right. So I'll include seminarians as a sort of footnote to that. Um, but of course, that's because they can accomplish the end goal of ordination um, as men. Um, and so um, now, but this is something where I, f- I still feel like there's some, um, you remember that video game Age of Empires when we were kids, yeah. we were like you oh, know, yeah. discovering, you know, black yeah. area on the map. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. yeah. Part, part of the map I haven't yet discovered yet is that there are teachers I have learned from. And so one who I really admire is um, Bishop Stuart Ruck in the upper Midwest um, and uh, Father Stephen Gautier, his canon theologian, who they've taught me so much about the role of male and female, men and women. But in their church, they do sometimes allow women to preach on a Sunday. Hmm. And this, is this I trust them as sort of like, they've been investigating these questions longer than I have, and have had determined minds longer than I have, and yet they do that. So that's something which I, I can't square. It doesn't seem consistent or right, but they must have some reasoning because they're very thoughtful leaders in the church. So, um, so, so I feel like, whereas when it comes to holy orders, I feel um, confident to the point of certainty the question of preaching, I still have a little bit of kind of unexplored gray area around. I want to be consistent to my own conviction presently. I'm open to learning a bit more. But I do think like my best understanding you know, is when we look at how like the church, the the way the life of the church has organically developed over the centuries, you know, the primary way in which the church manifests on earth is on a Sunday morning in the midst of a liturgy of word and table. Hmm. And so that is the church, you know, kind of most sure. pointedly. And so that is the most singular arena where First Timothy 2.12 comes to bear. Um, and that's why, um, yeah, I don't allow a non-ordained person who has not been given authority to preach and therefore also they're not a, a woman to preach in that setting. Um, yeah, so but so all I'd say that I, I, I there is a I have a little bit of hesitancy around the question of licensed lay preaching. Um, I think if you have licensed lay preachers, you sh- it, that the, the Tim Keller maxim should hold, and it should be open to men and women. And I can't square how women can as- assume the pulpit on a Sunday morning in the midst of the liturgy and not be grating against First Timothy two twelve. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah. That, that's yeah. I mean, it yeah. would be very hard. You could say this is non-authoritative as much as you want, but right. it like it, it'd almost be like begging the question a little exactly. bit. Exactly. Like, it, but trust me, it's not. It's not. It's just it, you exa- know exactly. Yeah. I almost feel like if if it was to exist at all, and I don't think that it can, but it would almost be from a different physical location, like a sort of secondary pulpit down in yeah. the center of the nave, or some way of saying that you establish sort of architecturally of like. But, that, but again, you're creating these sort of you're creating problems at this point. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah because yeah. Well, the other thing is, you know, some of this is the clash of traditions in the sort of Baptist tradition. A sermon is part teaching, part exhortation. You know, um, women can teach, but that sort of authoritative exhortation is reserved traditionally to the ordained, and that's traditionally mm-hmm. what is meant by preaching. So I only preach for twelve to fifteen minutes 
because I don't do teaching in the midst of the sermon. I do sort of, I get to the direct exhortation as quickly as possible. Sure. And I exhort with God-given authority and prayer. Uh, and then, and then we move on in the liturgy to the holy table, you know. And that, so that is interesting that, it, you know, that even the role of preaching between Anglicans in a non-denominational context is is different as well. Right. So right. there's an added complexity there when you when you start to to think right. through it. Because I might not be the smartest person. I'm probably not I'm the smartest person in the church. I might not be the. I might not even be the best um, interpreter of scripture in the church. And I hope that I, you know, near the top because of you know by training and yeah. formation and stuff, but. But it's possible that, like, the, let's, let's actually use the biblical word wisdom. I actually know that I'm not the wisest person in my church. And among the wisest people in, my ch- in the church that I serve are men and women. And I want the young to be mentored by the wise, men and mm. women. And so in mentorship, in, in education programming, in midweek programming, formation programming, I want men and women to be, to be sharing their wisdom. And the pulpit in the midst of the Eucharist is a different thing than just that. Well, there you have it. Thank you, Ben, for joining us. And uh, if you guys uh, are interested in his work, I'll leave uh, some, some links in the show notes. But we'll see you guys next week.